This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast at HarborParoxysm.com. I am Jason Mann. And with me as usual is Rich Krejci. Rich, great to be back with you. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're done. It's over. We are. We're finishing up our uh, our WrestleMania series, looking back at uh, Bill Russell's uh, career. We've gone through every single playoff series that he ever uh, took part in, and um, we've gone through a lot of his uh, aspects as a uh, as a social activist, his uh, influence as a great player, um, Really, just about everything that you could possibly get into. I think we've uh, we, we've delved into at least uh, to a certain extent. So hopefully, people have enjoyed it. I think we've really enjoyed uh, researching it and um, doing the show. I, I think this ended up being a much I have bigger. Not, actually, no, <laughs> yeah. you did not. Uh, no, I, I did not. So I'm glad. This is, no, I'm just. I, don't assume. I, don't assume. I, I had a right. it was horrible. Sorry, it was an awful, arduous night. All right. Well, that's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about that off the air. Okay. Good. Um, but yeah, this ended up, I think, being a much bigger project than we initially um, expected to be, just because there ended up being so many ways to divide, and just some of the research ended up being so big that it's like, oh, we'll just keep on going and dividing this up and uh, and tackling it. But we're we're finished now. We just kind of had um, we had a few people ask us questions about different things that we wanted to delve, us, delve into, so we're going to talk about that and just a few things that were a little bit of stray notes that we had. Um, talked about so uh i just you know we just kind of wanted to, uh, to kind of slam it in there so uh so to speak i that I, that's not, not the best expression i've ever had but uh yeah we're just gonna um just share some of our favorite stories and anecdotes and some of our extra notes and, and see where it goes yeah absolutely so. Um, so we'll start with, uh, we, um, James Curdy at, uh, James, uh, Curdy, um, wanted us to talk a little bit more about Russell's, uh, relationship with his teammates. Uh, so, uh, there's some interesting stories from, uh, from Second Wind and from the other books, uh, to go with. So I, I think we'll just kind of talk about it through, uh, the, uh, different players, but, um, one of my favorite stories, and we talked a little bit about it was, um, 
the idea of Sam Jones sort of being the uh, antagonist for uh, Will Chamberlain of just sort of like he always tried to get in Will's head and kind of taunted him and kind of, you know, just just like to sort of tease him. And they actually sort of had a friendship off the court as well. But like during the game, he just definitely liked to mess with him. And and, and this kind of made um, uh, kind of just made Russell a little bit upset. Just like, you know, I, I really didn't like it when Wilt got riled up because, you know, that made him even more angry, made him even more <laughs> difficult to deal with. It's like, you know, why do we need to do this? And, and, and his quote is, uh, you know, uh, once I made the supreme mistake of asking Sam to lay off and Sam said, what's the matter, Russ? You ain't afraid of him, are you? Uh, this got around to the other players and every chance they, they got, they'd ask me if I were afraid of Wilt. Uh, and then he also talked about Casey, um, always seemed to step on Wilt's feet a few extra times whenever I showed the slightest worry about his mood. And then he and Sam would laugh themselves silly at my distress. So I, uh, I, there's a lot of good Celtics just kind of, you know, joking around and keeping things light. And, and obviously when you're, um, dealing with the intense schedule and the, you know, the, the ups and downs of basketball games and having to kind of key yourself up for every game and being obviously more difficult to do that is as you're, uh, you know, as you're spending more time together, it, it's good to have that kind of that levity, you know, to, to, to kind of go along with it as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, um, there's a good, um, let's see. Um, there, there's a good, another one that kind of strikes me as far as levity goes is, uh, is Bob Cousy. Um, another story from a second wind where, um, uh, he he talks about uh, Kuzi um, throwing him a basket, throwing him a pass under the basket near the end of the game. Uh, that all that he had to do was dunk the ball. But then he realized that the opposing center was Walter Dukes, who loved to hit him on the head with every shot that he ever took. Um, and he and then Russell said, "Well, you were about ten points ahead with less than a minute to go." And they decided, "Nope, it's not worth it." So he just <laughs> simply dribbled the ball from out under the basket. And Kuzi was out there laughing. He knew when he passed me the ball that I wasn't going to take the dunk. He knew that I'd figure out that we had the game well enough put away that I wouldn't take my beating. Um, he and I laughed so hard that we lost the ball, but not the game. And he thought that uh, Kuzi was always kind of doing crazy things when he figured the pressure was off. Uh, he thought about another example where he'd bring the ball up the court looking serious and call a non-existent play, yell 22, and turn his back after passing the ball to Sharman, who'd be dumbfounded <laughs> at what was going on. So... Um, so, so that's kind of a fun one as, as well, as far as, uh, as far as the levity goes. Um, let's see. Um, there's also, um, a good one with Frank Ramsey where, um, and this is, you know, more serious. Like he had a, a close relationship with Ramsey, one of the closest members of the team. Um, but there were, um, and, and there's one incident where Ramsey, um, really stood up. We, we talked a little bit about this before where the Celtics were, in a, were an exhibition game in Lexington in 61 and uh, Russell and the other Celtics black players were refused service at a local coffee shop. So they decided, nope, we're not going to do this. We're going to go home. Uh, Russell had previously um, dealt with some um, dealt with similar treatment in um, an exhibition game. I think it was in Texas at one point and he had agreed to play. He, or I think it was North Carolina actually, but he agreed to play after discussing it with Auerbach. But this time he basically said, no, we're not going to do it. And um, Auerbach actually you know, ended up um, driving them to the, to the airport and, you know, supported them. And uh, a lot of some people really uh, some fans and sports writers complain, criticized for for not playing and for selling what should have been Ramsey's night. Um, but then Ramsey said, no, I was 100 
100% behind uh, Russell and the other boys. Uh, no thinking man in Kentucky segregationist. I can't tell you how sorry I am as a human being, a friend of the players involved, and as a resident of Kentucky for the embarrassment of this incident, which was, um, of course, you know, good for – kind of showed the um, – you know the the friendship that they developed and the um you know the, the kindness that Ramsey showed in that situation where obviously it was a situation that had embarrassed his teammates and that he even though people take an offense for him he did not actually take offense uh, for that incident as well and if I support his team um but in 64 there was a SI article that implied that Russell hated white people which Actually, his quote was much more complicated than that, but um, it was so it was taken that way. Surprised that that a media uh, that, that, that people <laughs> shock, take shocking, something yeah. from a, from a uh, article out of context and blow it up to make it something thing. But basically, Ramsey said, uh, "Hey Russell, I'm white. You hate me." And then Russell said, "Well, Frank, I was misquoted." And then Ramsey let it go. He didn't necessarily believe they'd been misquoted, but I think it kind of showed the. Um, just the ability for them, you know, that they had had this deep friendship that they were able to kind of, you know, obviously you, you're, you're with people, you're going to occasionally argue with them and deal with these type of things, but they had the level of respect for each other that even when they disagreed or had an issue with each other, they, um, uh, were able to, you know, just let it go and, and, and move beyond it. It didn't poison the team, so to speak. So, um, let's see. Um, there was um, uh, let's see. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the the article about uh, Alcatraz? I thought that one was really interesting. Yeah, uh, let me... uh, and, and that one was uh, this is from when uh, Russell and Casey Jones and the other San Francisco starting five were in. Um, of course, being in San Francisco, Alcatraz was in San Francisco, and this is from a great uh, Boston uh, Globe um, article by. Um, uh, by Baxter Holmes, um, who is at ESPN now, and was a really great. Um, I, I really recommend people uh, you Google it and read the whole thing if you had a chance because it's it's really awesome. It's it's fun, yeah. So you have uh, the University of San Francisco. They're starting five. They got a tour of the prison, and of course, this isn't like the con- you know that's not a big deal. You can go there all the time. Well, no, the prison was still like active when they got the yes. uh, the tour of it. So it uh, and of course, as you know, Alcatraz, it, it was the worst of the worst. It was the absolute, you know, the the. the the criminals of the time in the United States. And of course they put the rotten apples there uh, because yeah, they just couldn't go anywhere else. Like that was the, the place where, okay, you've, you've gotten out of this jail, you've gotten a, this is it. You're here and you're never going to do anything. You know, you're stuck here. Uh, the, it's interesting though, the convicts, they, uh, they looked at Russell and they were just in awe. Um, said a few of the guys, uh, typically civilians were never allowed beyond the visiting room where they were uh, separated from convicts by a, a thick, a uh, thing of glass. They could use a phone to communicate, but uh, the players—they not only walked through the cell house, kitchen, hospital, recreation yard, and uh, the industry. Uh, they even ate alongside them and met one who was segregated from all the others. Uh, Robert Stroud, the famous Birdman of Alcatraz, uh, a diagnosed uh, psychopath. He was serving a death sentence after killing a prison guard. Um, yeah, so he was <laughs> just chilling with the you know, it's college starting five basketball team, which is very interesting. Um, the day uh, Russell and them strolled through. Uh, a memory convicts could savor. Uh, of course, you know, seeing that team and seeing those guys, it was uh, you know just a great moment for the convicts. They really just enjoyed it. Uh, which, of course, it, you, you know, for reasons uh, this is the article for reasons uh, no one can quite explain. The visit by the most popular sports team in the area and the most dominant college basketball team in the country stayed hidden. It appears uh, until a f- uh, former convict mentioned it uh, halfway through his self-published book, Entombed in Alcatraz released in 2011 so yeah very interesting it, it never really got any publicity and they just kind of did it and 
then they left, and that was kind yeah. of it. So just a very interesting uh, moment. But but yeah, just crazy that you know eating alongside those guys, which you know they have nothing to lose. Those guys like literally nothing to lose. But they, uh, they didn't care. They they did it, and everybody was uh, uh seemed to be uh, as I said, like they were in awe of Bill Russell, and they enjoyed him. So that's that's great. It's, it's a really really awesome story. Yeah, definitely recommend uh, people check it out if they can. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it was sort of they talked about how um, they sort of opened up a little bit where they could start listening to uh, the radio and sports games on the radio, and, and San Francisco being, you know, the like I said, the, the the best college basketball team of the country, and you know, kind of a source of pride for the area and all that. Um, and then basketball had kind of been, you know, a little bit of an entertainment allowed to be an entertainment for the, uh, the you know the game had, had developed some popularity there, so. Yeah, the, the, all the aspects of it are really – it was really well done um, piece and, um, and, and really neat to see. So um, let's see. Um, so I, I, there's a uh, there's an anecdote from the rivalry of um, Russell in his first season um, where he was constantly provoked by uh, Ray Felix, who was a Knicks center uh, during a game. So he complained to Auerbach and – and Auerbach said, you know, you take the matters in your own hands. So um, after the next provocation, Russell punched Phoenix, Felix <laughs> unconscious, paid a $25 fine and was no longer a target of cheap out. So the, the, there's similar stories with uh, Wilt when he first got in the league. And, and it makes sense that you know, a guy would be physically tested um, to do that, to see how um, he didn't like to do it. And and I don't think Russell or Wilt particularly liked this. Okay? I mean, Wilt didn't, although, you know, for him, it was probably for each guy. It was more, it was a sort of a situation of, you know, I'm so big and strong. I don't want to, you know, hurt anybody else, you know? Um, and, and there's also certainly a, um, a different, you know, when you're a black, um, player playing in mostly white league, there's certainly, uh, you know, if, if you get, if you get violent in a situation, there's definitely a, um, a different connotation to that yeah. where, you know, <laughs> you gotta be a little yeah, careful. It, you can't just go so, throwing yeah. fists everywhere else. Yeah. It's not gonna, exactly. not gonna go well so. for you, unfortunately. Yes. So, um, and another one from Russell when he was a, um, rookie, um, sort of testing his limits as a rookie where he was frustrated at Bill Sharman and other players who were kind of like taking the ball and shooting it from his spot in the floor at center. And red was like, or Russell said, yeah, I'm would not get into the huddle. And then red, you know, basically it's like, why aren't you in the huddle? And he said, you know, I play center. Everyone else is playing center and I, I don't need to be in the huddle huddle to know how to get out of their way. And Russell red thought about it for a few seconds and said, okay, nobody plays center, but Russell. And that was basically the end of that. So, um, sort of, I read, read in me. We haven't had a chance to talk about it. Cause I, I read the book sort of late in this process and I, the couple of stories here that we're going to mention, but, um, it is kind of a nice look at sort of the, the way that the friendship developed between, um, Russell and, you know, clearly how much affection he had for red and it's a light book. And there's some stories from it that, you know, definitely heard from before, but that's, it's, it's sort of a nice one of, um, you know, it, it wouldn't be on the top of my list of Russell books to read, but there are there are some nice anecdotes in it um, in the book. So it, I, it, it was worth reading, even though it was a little bit a little bit on the thin side, I would say. Um, so um, there's a pretty good story um, on from uh, Second Wind on um, on Russell being approached by a uh, by a gambler, which I thought was was interesting. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, thankfully to, to, to Russell's credit, uh, he was very quick to, to kind of squash it uh, in a different way. He said, uh, "You can't afford it." <laughs> to the gambler, uh, the gambler was offended, and Russell explained that he would make over a million dollars in his career, and they'd have to risk it all plus his reputation. Uh, so it would cost about nine or ten million dollars per game. Later, it was reported 
uh, or later, Bill Russell then reported that to the commissioner. So uh, he's not wrong. Like he's, he's, he, it was a future uh, buy there. Where he's like, yeah, you know, I can, I can, you can give me a lot of money right now, or you know, I'll just keep him make a lot of money the rest of my career and then my reputation and stuff. And of course, at that era too, you know, we're still in the era of the NBA being you know of gambling being a problem in there and, and point fixing scandals and guys being you know kicked out of the leagues for, forever and and guys like you know of course like a Connie Hawkins or whatever would have to go to other leagues uh to 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 avoid you know, you know punishment or whatever so yeah it's just uh for him to be up there and just kind of say no no I'm, I'm good I'm gonna uh do this thing instead is uh just show some great uh intuition by by Russell there to sort of squash it and, and move on with the rest of his career yeah yeah um so there's a um for for um for Tommy Heinsohn, uh, he and Bill Russell kind of had a um I, you know some ups and downs in the relationship. Uh, when uh, when Russell was a rookie, well, they both were rookies. Uh, basically, openly said to Heinsohn that he deserved half of, of his three hundred dollar rookie of the year check, which you know kind of offended Heinsohn. And um, you know, and, and you know, if you look at it objectively, you could say you could kind of go either way as far as who should deserve the uh, rookie of the year because Heinsohn was really productive and he played the whole season where Russell didn't play the whole season. So, um, even though you would obviously say Russell was a better player, um, but you know they they have they spent a lot of time together as um, teammates and Heinsohn had a lot of uh, great things to say about um, Russell and they and he talked a bit later about where in uh, in seventy one. Uh, the team assembled in Reading, where Russell lived, um, to be with him as the town proudly honored their captain. Uh, it was the first time Heinz never saw Russell cry. He was so happy. A few months later, some people broke into Russell's home, rampaged, smashed his trophies, defecated in his bed, and spread the excrement over his walls. We, we've talked a lot about the kind of stuff that he enjoyed like that, unfortunately. They didn't want any black men in their town, but in the locker room, Russell never talked about the terrible things that happened to him so close to the Celtic City, and Heinsohn said he was too proud to let people know. And uh, and Kuzi said he also felt guilty. I wish I'd done more to support Russ. We were so close as teammates, but we all should have been more aware of his anger. Um, and Kuzi draws a deep sigh. But you know, jocks, all into the macho thing. Always afraid to let the conversation be anything more than superficial. We mature so much later than anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> that's he's got it. So. Yeah. Um. So, um, there's uh, there's some good stuff from when he was uh, when when his statue was finally dedicated in uh, in, in 2013. Yeah. Fire it up here real quick. Uh, yeah. So uh, of course he got this the statue and it. it um. This is an article uh, from SB Nation as well that that kind of details it a little bit. Uh, if you look up Bill Russell's statue, SB Nation, you should be able to find it pretty good. But uh, here's some quotes from it. Uh, it was the rest of Russell's life, uh, life that made him so compelling. I consider the eclectic list of people who were present for his long-awaited statue unveiling at Boston City Hall on Friday. The NBA was represented by several Hall of Famers, including Charles Barkley, Bill Walton, and Clyde Drexler. He had ex-Celtics like Sam Jones and JoJo White, uh, Commissioner David Stern, and also his deputy uh, Adam Silver. Uh, but the basketball guys weren't really the important part. I think what, what was most uh, important here was, uh, you know, that you had uh, the Boston mayor, Tom uh, Minio had been there, Governor uh, Deval Patrick, actress Alfre Woodward, uh, Woodard uh, gave a moving speech about civil rights. Bill Withers was there. Johnny Mathis was there. They both performed a song. Uh, and then, yeah, Bill had just lived such a gigantic life uh, away from just, you know, basketball and competition and all that. And, you know, he had always fought that fight as well and insisted that, you know, people – understand that he lived a life beyond you know basketball that i lived a a, a very cultured a very you know a, 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 a culture might be the right yeah i don't know just a very uh, diverse life outside of basketball yeah and despite the fact that he's only known 
uh, in large part because of his basketball career, always sort of bothered him a little bit. And he always tried to get away from that. And that's why you saw in his post-playing career, you know, while he coached to places and did some stuff and some GM work or whatever, he always seemed hesitant to say, you know, hey, hey no, I'm doing this. Uh, I'm living a life outside of basketball. So focus on that a little bit. Or here's what I'm doing a little bit. So he was always always cognizant of that, of trying to get uh, people to know that he lived a, a, a gigantic, fruitful life outside of the game. And he wasn't just con- confined to basketball. That You know, that wasn't just his life. Yeah, and a lot of the ceremonial stuff that he sort of you know was willing to do later in his life that he wasn't willing to do in the seventies and stuff, like you uh, getting his number re-retired and the statue and and things like that were um, also to promote like mentorship, you know, which has kind of been the cause of his for later in his life of the you know the uh, of programs to you know put young people together with mentors and and things like that. So he's you know, even though he's accepting the stuff that he kind of rejected when he was younger, he's doing it you know for a greater purpose as well. So. Um, and, um, I, I like, uh, there's a, uh, there's a talk of, um, there's a story toward the end of it where, um, at the unveiling of the, um, at the official unveiling, a man yelled, we love you, Bill. Um, and, um, another added long overdue. And it, it sort of goes back to the, um, the famous koozie retirement where, you know, the, the guy screams, you know, we love you coos and sort of like, you know, kind of a reflection of that and just shows like, obviously Russell had a, um, a mixed relationship with Boston for a, a number of times, but there's been some, um, but now there's more of that in, um, uh, you know, there's there's a uh, you know, the, the, there's kind of more of a deeper acceptance of, uh, you know, relationship between them. And he's sort of willing to a- accept the love that a lot of people in Boston um, you know, now feel for him. So um, so a few other things, uh, a few random things that I um, want to talk about were um, uh, I liked Russell talking about how. Uh, especially as he got older, he never ran out of the huddle to the jump circle. He would take his time and walk out slowly with his arms folded in front of him. Um, his quote is, I'd look at everybody disdainfully like a sleepy dragon who can't be bothered to scare off another would-be hero. Um, and uh, and speaking of the mixed reaction with uh, in Boston, uh, after the Celtics lost in 67, uh, the fans in Boston hooted me that summer in the streets. All washed up, eh? I knew it couldn't last. You guys don't have it anymore. Never had I felt happier that long ago I trained myself to discount the cheers Jeez. and uh, and the booze. Yeah. So, so any, and any then eighty year old Bostonians that are listening to this show, you guys are kind of mean to Bill. That's, yeah. That's... Yeah. Don't do that. And um, and then he talks about his uh, final season as player coach during the huddle, trying to rally the team, and then he's suddenly is in a game against Baltimore, and he um, he starts bursting out laughing uncontrollably, and he says. Here I am, a grown man, 35 years old, running around semi-nude in front of thousands of people in Baltimore, playing a game and yelling about killing people. And the team, of course, is befuddled by this and not understanding why he's laughing and why he's saying this. And then he said, that game confirmed my decision to retire. You can't give out what a game requires if you start focusing on its ridiculous aspect. So, um, uh, uh also, um, from a great piece from uh, from Frank DeFord, we written I think in 1999, which was kind of like one of the first like big pieces that started um, Russell sort of kind of publicly coming out of the woodwork and um, you know starting to accept more acclaim and writing Russell rules and starting to get more of a public persona after having been private for so long. Um, and this uh, this piece actually ended up winning uh, you know like a uh, uh, several awards that year, but um, and um, 
yeah, there are a couple of interesting things about it. One was that uh, you know, we've of course talked about the fact that Russell wouldn't even wouldn't give out autographs, and right. he even didn't want to give his teammates autographs. And uh, you know, like uh, one uh, like Satch Sanders asked, did he wanted a he wanted a signature of every Celtic he played with, and then Russell said, "You Satch of all people know how I feel." Russell snapped, and then uh, Satch said, "Damn it, I'm your teammate, Russ." <laughs> Nevertheless, when the shouting was over, Russell still wouldn't sign. So it was <laughs> like he's uh, not going to sell it. He just wanted he, it. Like, he, he yeah yeah it's a little uh, maybe, maybe a little strong there for Bill, but he obviously has convictions, and um, he um, um, so Russell uh, also talked about uh, this was sort of a playing thing with with Kuzi uh, and Heinsohn, and the Kuzi and Heinsohn things I talked about before were actually from this article as well, um, talking about kind of supporting sort of supporting Russell um, when he was dealing with all the things he was dealing with. Um, one of the hardest things he had to accept was that if he filled one lane on a fast break and Heinsohn was on the other flank, Kuzi would give Heinsohn the ball and the basket every time. He simply had so much confidence in Heine, Russell says. So I just disciplined myself to run that break all out, even if I knew I wasn't going to get the ball. Which yeah, I, which is a great yeah. tidbit because yeah, if you, if you loaf on that, then the play's not what it is. Yeah, it's like exactly. Yeah, so it, even though he didn't get the ball there, he he still had to you know fill that role. And and he talked about how um there there's a quote from Red and Me about um trying to find that uh, uh, specific. Oh yeah. He, um, he encouraged um, red encouraged Russell to shoot, to um, keep him more engaged in the game, even though shooting was a weakness. And this was during, you know, his early in his career, his rookie year. And he said, red engineered the system such that all five guys had something I- integral to do on every play. So, you know, even if you weren't getting the necessary of the ball, what, what you did, you know, mattered on each play. So, you being a key thing to um to keep guys engaged which i think is um uh it makes total sense when you think about it but isn't something that you know because obviously there's so much going on in a play in basketball where it's hard you know just even people who are experts to keep focus on every single little thing but the importance i think of making sure that everyone knows what they're doing matters and that they need to go you know to to do it you know Effectively, I think is really a key part of why the Celtics were such a um, you know great team for so long. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and one thing is that what I hadn't realized is that uh, Jackie Robinson's wife actually um, asked uh, Bill Russell to be a pallbearer at his funeral. He died in uh, 1973 or 74, I believe. And then Russell said, you know, of course I will. And then he asked why. And, he, and she said that Russell was Jackie's favorite athlete. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's, that's got to be humbling, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even for a guy like Bill Russell to be like, oh, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let's see. I think that might be it. I don't know if there's anything else that you have uh, that you wanted to uh, bring up that was. Oh, one more thing. Um, John Havlicek, his uh, first encounter with Russell was during training camp in 62. Uh, Russell was struck by uh, Havlicek's work ethic, and uh, Havlicek was taken aback by the big man's generous spirit. When Havlicek mentioned he was in the market for a new stereo, Russell took him all over Boston to, to find the uh, right piece of equipment. So, oh, guys. Um, yeah, Russell or uh, Havertrick wrote in his book. Uh, Havertrick's book's not really um, all that insightful, to be honest. But it's a little, uh, you know, um, uh, Havertrick was a great player, but maybe not that uh, introspective of a guy. But he, uh, you know, some of his uh, the culture shock things that he had from coming from Ohio to uh, you know to, to play in Boston and uh, you know and and. and learning to you know um play with russell and play with the other guys and then later you know to take on um a bigger role in the 70s um there's there's a few interesting things there but um uh, there's also one other havlicek related thing is that um he remember the day that russell um 
He put the presence uh, basketball world perspective. This is from an NBA.com uh, uh, profile of Russell. Uh, it was one of those Las Vegas Liberty Golf tournaments, um, Havlicek said. The Bulls had just won another championship, and someone walked up to Russell and said, what do you think of the Bulls winning three in a row? Russell looked at him and said, mm, not much. <laughs> <laughs> so Take that. There you go. Michael. Yes. Why don't you win uh, eight? <laughs> yeah, why don't you win eight in a row? Yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. Um, yeah, well, that... I think that's it, unless you have anything else to uh, discuss. No, that's it. That's it for the, the WrestleMania series. No, it's been, like you said, it, it kind of grew beyond what we maybe even thought it was going to grow to. But I, I've, been, I've really enjoyed it, and I think uh, people have enjoyed it as well. And that's the important part is I think uh, we've, we've had a lot of people discussing it, a lot of people mentioning different tidbits, people sending us stuff. So that, that's always encouraging when you know we sort of have this hair, harebrained idea or whatever, and we're like, ah, you know, no one's going to care. But a lot of people cared, and a lot of people listened, and a lot of people have supported us throughout this entire series. So it's, uh, it's been great. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're gearing up for our summer series as well, which I think is going to uh, gain a lot of steam as well. I think people are going to be way into it, and, uh, and I can't wait to get it started. But this was great as well. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's been really fun, and um, I I appreciate people who have have dug it, and uh, and if you haven't been into it, hopefully you like what we what we have next. It's um, we're going to be looking at the uh, the, the the basketball mysteries of the seventies. We're going to dig into the uh, NBA and the ABA of that time period, and uh, which I, I think is we've talked about it a little bit before, but I think there is that decade is such. Um, I think it has more mysteries than any other decade in NBA history because um, it's harder to wrap your mind around like the biggest stories of the seventies are not nearly as clear as like the biggest stories of the, you know, the, the eighties are obviously right. Celtics and Lakers and you know, the, the Lakers, are the dominant team there and, and the battles they had against, you know, the, the Sixers and the Celtics and, and the Pistons of course. And then, you know, the nineties are, you know, central uh, Jordan and the Bulls are the central thing. And then, you know, even the two, the two thousands are the Lakers and the Spurs. And, you know, those, I think there's like a dynasty for each decade. There's a team or two for each decade where you can kind of center your thinking around, there are standout players who, um, you know, are, are obviously the players of the decade. And the '70s, it's a little bit harder because um, the 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 universe of basketball expanded to so much, so many teams, so many leagues, so many movement between teams and leagues. There wasn't that same kind of stability that led to dynasties. Uh, a lot of teams that looked like they were going to become dynasties broke up early, or something happened. So it, it, there is, and there's also, you know. Um, there's more footage of the seventies than there's of the sixties, but not that much more. And the league is so much bigger. I think mm-hmm. it's just harder to get your like mind wrapped around, um, all the different things. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of just, we're going to, we're going to look at, try to look at as many different things as we can sort of figure out, you know, questions that we have and try to figure out this, their solutions. We're also going to, we picked 15 different teams, that we would argue have a have a case for being the a, the team of the decade, whether it's basketball accomplishments or being interesting or you know or, or, or different aspects. We're we're going to uh, spend a lot of time looking at all those different teams and um, you know, figuring out uh, who was important and telling stories and good stuff like that. So we're excited to do it. Absolutely, can't wait. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us at hardwareproxism.com. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you left us a rating and review, we would adore you, and we would uh, sing your praises for a long time. Um, roses at your feet. Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. So, and, uh, e, e feet. We would, uh, we, yeah, right, we're not right. going to go and meet you wherever you are. Virtu- but, virtual feet. Yeah. yeah. We'll, Unless you're we'll, nearby. If, you're, near, if yeah. you're very close to me, maybe I will. But not, all right. maybe not roses, but all right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll think something. <laughs> DM, um, us, DM us. We'll talk. 
Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and um, and also you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.